Chatting with Sherry. Today we welcome Buzz Dixon. He is a very talented uh, writer of novels, comic books, films, cartoons. He was the, one of the people who did G.I. Joe and American Hero, The Transformers, uh, Jim, Alvin and the Chipmunks, all kinds of stuff. He's really, really talented. Anyway, we have a really lively discussion. Here is Buzz. Welcome back to the show. Hi, Sherry. How you doing? I'm okay. How are you? Well, we're doing well. Doing well under under the circumstances. We've we've had some personal sorrow. My my wife unfortunately lost her mother, you know, back in April due to COVID. Uh, on the other hand, she and I ourselves have been doing well. I mean, physically, and uh, we've been renovating our house recently just to have something to do. So. We're doing as well as can be expected, I guess. I'm sorry for your loss. That's terrible. Oh, thank you. It, it, um, it was a very, you know, everybody who has suffered something like this knows what it's like. And uh, this has been an especially terrible pandemic because you can't, you can't be there to help and comfort people, you know, in many circumstances. Exactly. So, anyway, thank you. Thank you. Um, last time I saw you was at a convention. And you were yeah. guest of honor, and life was normal. Um, <laughs> as close to it as it passes in this world, yes. Yes. <laughs> um, between them, then and the pandemic, has anything exciting happened? <laughs> well, I've, I've been uh, selling short stories here and there, and uh, I've been... Uh, I've, I've still got my novels that I'm working on. I, I have changed my initial strategy um, and we can talk about that in relation to the pandemic because the, the pandemic has been one of the one of the crucial things that has changed that strategy but as I said I have been writing I've been uh, uh, selling stories hither thither and yon I've I have a, a story in a uh, anthology that came out this summer called uh, uh, heartbreaks and half truths which was a uh, crime anthology, and, and as the the title implies, it had some each each crime had something to do with a uh, intense personal relationship that somebody was going through. Mine was called Tongor of the Elephants, and it was set in the uh, world of uh, old cereal making back in the 1940s, and it involved um, I guess you might call it a a, uh, a romantic rectangle. In which uh, you know people people ended up paying the ultimate price as a result of it, but it was very well accepted. Uh, I've got another story coming out in an anthology that'll be released in a few weeks called uh, Fearless Leader, and um, it the anthology was 
presented as a collection of satires on despotic leaders. And I had a story that I sent to them that really isn't a satire, not humorous. It's, it's actually rather grim, uh, but it's a science fiction story, and it's called Minutes. And um, they accepted that, and it'll be published in just, uh, in just a few weeks, as I said. That's cool. So I've been, I've been busy. I've been writing stories. Um, my initial strategy when we last spoke was I was planning for a uh, self-published identity. I was going to be doing my own books coming out uh, on uh, you know, Amazon and uh, Kindle and things like that. The pandemic made me take a step back and look at things and reassess, and I am weighing now exactly how I want to progress with the rest of my career, because uh, the pandemic has changed things, and it is still in the process of changing things. We, we won't know for another three to five years exactly how much our society has changed because of this because it's going to take three to five years for us to recognize all the dominoes that have fallen, all of the things that have changed, which in turn changes something else. And it's, and, a, and change. And it's a world thing, too. It's not just... Yeah, It's exactly. everybody. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, I'll, I'll jump back to the Spanish flu, and this is an example of how the change, even if it's bad for some people ends up being beneficial in other ways. And that is that we wouldn't have had Hollywood in the classic sense of like 1920s, 30s, 40s Hollywood. That wouldn't have existed if the Spanish flu hadn't bankrupted movie theaters across the country. Because when the Spanish flu hit in 1918, most movie theaters were independent mom-and-pop operations. In some of the bigger cities and on the East Coast and things like that, you might have uh, somebody who would own, you know, a few, maybe a half dozen, maybe maybe on the East Coast in several different cities, they might own a dozen or so. But very few people were like that. Most of the theaters were independently owned and operated, and they weren't very classy either. Movie theaters weren't the movie palaces we think of in the 1920s. Um, when the Spanish flu hit, people stopped going to the movies. They stopped getting out of their house. They stopped congregating. They stopped hanging around together. And the movie exhibition business took a really big hit across the country. And as I said, a lot of these were mom-and-pop operations especially the ones in, in smaller communities. And um, Zucor, the guy who was the, the head of Paramount, mm -hmm. he correctly analyzed what was happening. He recognized there are hundreds, if not thousands, of movie theaters across the country that are shuttered, that are going out of business. They're going to go bankrupt. The people are going to lose their money and those theaters will be lost. And if I buy up those theaters now, I'll have a guaranteed place to play Paramount movies. And so he went to some 
East Coast bankers, and he told them what his idea was, and they went along with it. And they basically went across the United States to all of these small communities and said, look, you know, your, your theater is shuttered. You're not making any money. You were, you were a, a marginal profit to begin with. You weren't making a fabulous amount of money. We'll buy you out, you know, for a fraction of what it's really worth, but it's better than going completely bankrupt, isn't it? And people did. They, they sold out. He bought up these theaters. When the pandemic ended, he now had a studio to make movies. He had um, a distribution system to get the movies across the country. And he had hundreds of theaters to show his movies. Well, you know, the rest of uh, Hollywood wasn't stupid. And the moment they saw him doing this, they all jumped in the act, too. And there, there was actually intense competition to go out and buy these failing movie theaters. Now, obviously, not every small community sold out. Not every mom and pop, you know, theater, you know, sold out to these guys. But enough of them did that the studios, once they had a guaranteed source of income, were able to start bankrolling much bigger, much more elaborate productions. They were able to start the myth of what we now know as classic Hollywood, with these huge elaborate productions and the, the, the stars living fabulous lives and all of this. It was all made possible because the pandemic wiped out the theater business. I think Where that was... something like that happen? I, I, that made me think, you know, I think that's what happened to the Selznicks, that they got messed up by those movie, uh, those movie pioneers. And mm -hmm. one of the reasons that both um, David and Myron became so very successful in their own section of show business was revenge against them. Yeah, 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 absolutely. People, um, you know, talk about the uh, Supreme Court ruling, which recently was reversed, that said um, you couldn't have one company own the production, the distribution, and the ex exhibition means. You know, you, they had to give up one of the three. And everybody assumes um, the incorrect history is that, oh, well, the movie studios gave up the theaters. No, it was the other way around. The theaters owned the movie studios. The theaters gave up the movie studios. They they knew at that point that there was there was a huge amount of product being generated out there, and they didn't need the studios anymore. So they cut the studios loose. Yeah, it's really interesting. That is, yeah. and it's like something that you can see it. I, I, I know that the old monopoly uh, rules that you can't have a monopoly got turned around, in, I think it was Reagan, that they, yep. they they opened it up and they said, oh, you can have monopolies now. I think that was the dumbest thing, one of the dumbest things they ever yeah. did. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you, you see now people say, well, you know, the mainstream media doesn't tell you the truth. You know, they're always giving you these liberal lies. And it's like, excuse me, how many companies own mainstream media? It's like six, 
major multinational corporations own 95% of the media. So why, why do you think these conservative corporations are pushing, you know, Liberal ideas. Progressive. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Why, why do you think that? Uh, you know, it's, it's not. It doesn't happening. even make sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and and we've seen. I mean, this this is another one of those things that that is annoying. Um, the internet used to be wide open, mm -hmm. and and there were good things about that, and there were bad things about it, but the idea was that everybody had equal access. And when they got rid of net neutrality, what they basically said was, we're, we're letting the people with the money create situations where it's more difficult for the smaller person to get in there. And the, the analogy that I would make to it would be, um, prior to this, everybody had a soapbox on the corner. And the big companies, they could dress up their soapbox and they could, um, um, you know, they could put banners on it and they could have lights and they could have a megaphone, but everybody had a right to a soapbox on the corner. Now, the big companies are allowed to put up uh, blockades on the sidewalk. So you have to make an effort to go around the blockade to hear the person on the other side who doesn't have the money. You know, it's not impossible to hear that person, but it's it's been made a lot more difficult. And, you know, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to squeeze out independent ideas, independent thought. Um, they, the uh, copyright law constantly being revised to stretch it out longer and longer in complete violation to what copyright was established in the Constitution. The, the Constitution of the United States said that copyright existed because the people of the United States had the right to benefit freely from ideas and inventions created by American citizens. They had the right to benefit freely, to encourage people to be inventive and create stuff that people would then be able to use for free. The creators, the individuals, were allowed a limited space of time where they had exclusive rights to their idea. And after that period of time ran out, it became public domain and anybody could use it. Mm -hmm. And that was the idea, that, that you've got 24 years to, to make as much money as you can off of your your book, your song, your your invention, whatever you want. You've got 24 years where you're the only person who can benefit from it. And then after that, everybody can benefit from it. Well, thanks to Disney, we now have a situation where it, it literally extends over 100 years. It's the life of the creator plus X number of years past that. And this is a complete violation of what copyright and patent law was meant to do. But, you know, they, they got their guys to vote for it in Congress and the Senate, and we're now, we're now in a situation where it's almost impossible for anything to enter the public domain. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Because yeah. I know that 
I mean, Agatha Christie books, some of them have entered the public domain, and it's been a hundred years. Right. And yeah. But hers is very well monitored and, and, and administered by, well, at first it was her, her daughter and then her grandson yeah. and now her great-grandson. So family's been controlling it, so I'm really surprised that... They well, I know they're in a different country, but they have a lot of American uh, publication publishers. So it's just kind of yeah. strange that that happens. Yeah, it, that, there's there's not a uniform copyright law, and I'm going to say something here that I'm going to preface by telling all of our United States listeners: don't do this. It is against the law. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Say no more. But Australia and Canada have different copyright terms than the United States, and in those countries you can find works that are still copyright in the United States, that are still copyright in England, that are now legally in the public domain. For example, and I offer this merely as an, as a, um, uh, an illustrative point, not telling anybody to sign in to the Canadian uh, websites and find them, download them for themselves, but the entire Ian Fleming James Bond collection is public domain in Canada now. I didn't know that. So if you, yes, if you were if you were a Canadian citizen, wink wink nudge nudge, say no more. <laughs> you can just go on to their their website and uh, their their uh, their equivalent of Project Gutenberg. Um, I think it's called Faded Ink. I'm not 100% sure, but you know, you poke around, you'll find it, and you could download all the James Bond novels. You know, now I'm telling all of you people in the United States, don't you do that? That's not right in the United States. You know, and and likewise Australia. Australia has a ton of stuff that isn't available yet in the United States that uh, has has gone public domain in Australia. Well. Once it goes public domain in one place, how do you keep it from being public domain everywhere? That's true because you can you know? see Australian shows on Acorn and Brick, uh, yeah. Brickbox and all these other shows. Like, so yeah. just because it's yeah. not public domain here doesn't mean you don't have access to it because yeah. you you do. Right. And you've got you've got weird variants on public domain too. For example. It depends on which edition of Conan as to whether or not a particular Conan story is public domain or not. If you're talking about the magazine edition that appeared in Weird Tales, that's probably public domain. If you're talking about the revised edition that was published, you know, a decade or so later that they have scrupulously kept the trademark and copyright up on, the revised edition which has very few changes in it, but nonetheless is a distinctly different version than the magazine version. The revised edition is is uh, not public domain. There's a, a website called Internet Archive, and they have literally tens of thousands of, of magazines all the way back to the pulp era, all the way back to the 19th century, literally tens of thousands, including virtually every science fiction magazine ever published, available for download. That's interesting. Now, you know that almost every uh, author 
going back from like I'd say the 80s all the way back to Jane Austen mm-hmm. and Charles Dickens published the magazines yeah. first. Yeah, yeah, because that that was thanks to to Gutenberg. Gutenberg pioneered in the West movable type, and at first it had a very limited application, but the moment people, the moment speculators began to realize, say, we can publish books, broadsheets, stories, uh, song lyrics, whatever you want, we can publish these things and sell them to the average person instead of just to royalty. Well, that kicked off a huge boom in literacy, and it also kicked off a a boom in book sales. Um, And yeah, you're right. It it created the magazine world that that we we are familiar with now, but same basic operating principle. Yeah. Fascinating. But I mean, I knew that because there's actually... Um, a thing about I, I read a lot about authors I pr- admire, and one of the things that they said was Jane Austen did it in parts. They, they, it was like yeah. book form, but it was their version of a magazine. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, this is if if your readers aren't aware of Project Gutenberg, just just Google it and go online. And they have, their objective is to have every book that is in the public domain eventually transcribed and available for download. That's Literally, so cool. that is their goal. And they've got over 60,000 titles online now, including a, a lot of short stories that originally appeared in magazines that are now public domain. Um, and, uh, you know, stuff is, is popping up, new stuff is popping up every day on, on their website. And, yeah, they, they have complete scans of, of magazines like Goodies Ladies Magazine, and uh, I'm trying to remember some of the others right off the top of my head. But, but magazines going all the way back to the, the late 18th, early 19th century, and you can, you can find... People, you know, their earliest writings appearing in these things. You know, I, I was looking at, um, I, I, I always check out their poetry books because I don't always necessarily download them, but I check them out. I'm just curious as to what they've got. And one of the books had the first publication of Joyce Kilmer's Trees. Wow. You know? Do they and, have, and so you, you've got... Do they have ancient stuff like Sappho and and and? Yes, they do. They have really. They have translations of ancient stuff, um, and you. They also have medieval manuscripts that have been uh, transcribed into into modern English. Yeah, they've got a huge amount of stuff. Wow. I mean, it's incredible what they have. They they have got everything. Just today, when I went on, they have everything from how to make drapes. A, a 1950s pamphlet that some sewing machine company published that fell into the public domain. So, son of a gun, they scanned it and they put it online. They have um, stories out of uh, classic Planet Stories magazine. 
they've been they've been running a bunch recently. Um, they've they've had uh, Virginia Woolf stories because uh, some of her earliest stories are now falling into the public domain and they're <laughs> they're popping up one by one. I didn't realize so that. So there's an enormous yeah there's an enormous amount of stuff out there. Yeah, just the stuff from like um, well, a hundred years, nineteen twenties. There's some yeah. glorious things in that period. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, we're seeing we're seeing it happening. I mean, as as hard as Disney has fought to extend copyright indefinitely, it it is finally falling. And you know, one of the drawbacks of copyright being held so long. Um, Two names that, that one you'll recognize, one you may not recognize, Rudyard Kipling and Raphael Sabatini. Now, Sabatini wrote um, Captain Blood and Scaramouche, and I mean, the, he was like one of the original historical swashbuckler guys. Mm -hmm. And he wrote a ton of great books, historical swashbucklers. He was a very, very popular, best-selling author up through the 1920s, and unfortunately he died, and he did not have a very savvy literary executor left behind, and his books fell out of print, and instead of having somebody who was constantly pushing and promoting and keeping them going the way that Agatha Christie's did, um, the way that Rudyard Kipling's for a while did, um, his books just fell out of print. And there was a long period of time, it was, it was like 20, 30 years, you could not find a Sabatini book in print, not a new edition of it, simply because there was nobody promoting it, nobody saying, hey, these are great books and you can sell them to a new generation. They, they just fell out of favor and people forgot who he was. And the same thing happened with Kipling. After, after his death, for a few years, they kept promoting his work and keeping it out there. And then interest in it waned until it hit public domain, until the copyrights began expiring. And when the copyrights began expiring, then people began going, oh, we can republish Kipling now and not have to pay any royalties. So all of a sudden, all of these Kipling books started coming back into print, and people rediscovered it. Of course, they've been a lot more critical of him as a result, because they're looking at him from, you know, about 80 years difference, uh, you know, from his worldview to this worldview. But nonetheless, Kipling has been rediscovered. Sabatini's work is just starting to enter the public domain. And so hopefully we'll see people rediscover Sabatini as well. I'm one of those people that love old movies, though, and I'm also a book reader. So one yeah. of the movies my parents introduced me to were Topper. Topper, Topper Takes oh, a Trip, yeah. all the Thorne Smith novels. Do you yeah. know that when I discovered it in the 70s, you could not find it? You could not, you, I mean, I scavenged, I found, um, I found a topper at a garage sale, I found Topper Takes a Trip at a, um, at a swap meet, then yeah. around the 80s, um, Kate, um, what's her name, she was in Charlie's Angels, Kate Jackson 
and um, Andrew Stevens did a revive of Topper, yeah. and they published the books in nice, pretty yeah. things. But it takes like a new movie uh, revive yeah. to get them to publish something that's older, and it's like so yeah. hard to find a book that's fallen out of print. It makes me crazy. Yeah, I know. I am a huge fan of a writer named H. Allen Smith. He was he was a humorist in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Wrote some of the funniest stuff imaginable. And he, too, has just... He's fallen out of uh, favor, and his, his books aren't being republished now. And, and part of it, I'll be honest, part of it is, in many cases, the subject matter was so specific to the particular era it was written in, people have a hard time accessing it today, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. it, it, uh, he, he, one of his best books was called Mr. Zip, and it's, it's basically a send-up of Roy Rogers. <laughs> and if you, don't know, if you don't know who Roy Rogers was, if you don't know what early 1950s cowboy shows were like, you know, you read this and you go, well, that's amusing. You don't understand just how funny it is because you're not, you don't have uh, the cultural reference to get all the jokes, so to speak. I understand and, yeah. that, yeah. Yeah. The funny yeah. thing is, is yeah. that uh, with, um, with the Topper books, uh, with the Thorne Smith books, uh, I actually, his problem was basically that he was a heroin addict, and toward the end, his yeah. ability kind of fell on its ass. But yeah. uh, there's one book, no, two books, that I would like to see made into a movie. One book in particular, it's called The Nightlife of the Gods. And oh, yeah. I love yeah. that book. If I, oh, yeah. Any guys up there who could buy that, it, I don't even know if it's public or not, and they make it into a movie, I'll be your slave for life, because that, yeah. that is a book I love. It's one of the funniest books. And the other one, most, not many people. My father told me about it, and I found it at another swap meet. It's called the Bishop's Jagers, which is an old term for their underwear, and it's crazy, funny, hilarious. I read it at the beach and couldn't stop laughing. Kind of funny yeah. in public. Um, <laughs> but those are the two books I'd like to see as a film. <laughs> You know, if, if too bad you're not Australian or Canadian, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, because then you can find them. <laughs> no, I own them, but I mean. <laughs> yeah, you know what I'm saying. I'm not just, anybody who's listening, if you're if you if you're lucky enough to be Australian or Canadian, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Um, you know, go to those websites, and uh, you, you you will be surprised at what turns up. So yeah, these books, these old books that fall out of favor, that doesn't, they don't fall out of favor because they're not good. They fall out yeah. of favor for different reasons. Uh, for example, The Great Gatsby was out of print yeah. until like the late '60s because college professors started to use it as a part of their courses, mm -hmm. and that's what, how yeah. it resurged. Yeah. Well, I mean, classic example, Moby Dick. I mean that that was considered a flop until about like 1920 when it was rediscovered and, and they recognized son of a gun this is this is a huge massively important book I yeah. know it's just weird and, and it has nothing to do with whether the book's good or not it's just, just they just fall out of isn't favor that, isn't, yeah I know I, I have 
I have been rereading um, some old, you know, when I say old, like 1930s, 1940s short stories, and the best ones are still good. I mean, you 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 see little bumps in in terminology and slang in things like that, you know, you, you you know, a big point is made over using the rotary phone and you go, Okay, well, all right, that's that's minor. The the, the core of the story itself is still about human beings going through something. Mm-hmm. And you just you just ignore the little details that don't quite you know, they're they're a little uh, not anachronistic, but they, they just date the story, you know. Um that's just like um, a great movie Uh, most uh, out of touch title in the world now people don't even know what it means dial in for murder (laughs) yeah exactly yeah they don't get that (laughs) yeah until you see the movie because it's really obvious when you watch the movie Um, but yeah but if you just are like you see a, a, a bunch of Hitchcock movies or Grace Kelly movies or whatever, and it yeah. says dial in for mer- what? What style? What is, is that soap? I mean, yeah. What is style? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's it, we we have a lot of phrases that we use that that don't mean what we think they mean because they are based off of earlier expressions, earlier phrases, and and they have just changed now so that you know, hang up. Literally, you hung the phone up uh-huh. at a hook. On a hook on the wall. Down. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. You literally hung the phone up. You know. um, yeah, I've, I've, um, I've been noticing that. I'm, I'm thinking of writing a blog post in the near future about some forms of media, some writers and creators who I see falling out of favor now, and the reason they're falling out of favor is not because the stuff isn't brilliant. It is. But it is so much of the time it was created in. Um, the Firesign Theater, for example. These guys were absolutely brilliant. Mm-hmm. They're hilarious. But if you weren't around in the 60s and 70s, it's difficult to understand all the references because the references are flying very fast. They are in the context that people of the era would understand it. And a lot of times when you hear something, um, you'll hear it and you'll hear it the wrong way. And by that I mean you hear something that was in 1969 meant as a satirical comment on a certain type of attitude, but because our society has changed so much and because that attitude is no longer as prevalent as it once was, people now hear it and go, oh my goodness, they're saying this, they're saying that. It's like, no, they're not saying this, they're not saying that, they're, they're saying the exact opposite, but you had to be there. You had to understand that at that time, everybody else was thinking one thing and they were saying something different and that was shocking at that time now people were thinking more like them but they hear that and they go well oh my goodness these guys are are reprobates they're they're terrible people we shouldn't listen to them that's interesting because i i was watching they they have um 
laughing on one of the yeah. channels now, which um, yeah. I remember watching as a little girl, but I don't remember it very well because I was a very little girl. Um, yeah. But I was watching it, and I and I was thinking, even though I understood everything, because I grew up in the 70s, so I understood it, but it was like, I, I, I was like, oh my God, this is like now. Oh, that's like now, too. Yeah. Oh, that's like now. And yeah. it goes so fast, you got to like really yeah. keep up with them, because it's like boom, yeah. boom, 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 boom. And I mean, exactly, yeah. it's it's some of the greatest comedy writing I think. I don't know if people, younger people, would automatically get that. Um, and and especially when they bring up stuff like Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan yeah. then was the governor of the state of California, but it yeah. interacts kind of beautifully with Ronald Reagan, the President of the United States, so I immediately yeah. got every single joke that they flapped at him. Um. Yeah. <laughs> but, but at the same time, not only were they commenting on the culture of their time, they were also creating it. Because look at all the catchphrases they had. Mm -hmm. Sock it to me, you bet you your sweet zippy. zippy. The flying pickled finger of fate. <laughs> oh, it's my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can think of people who deserve that now. <laughs> yeah. But, but the thing is, a person today who had not experienced that culture sees the show and they, they don't get the context mm -hmm. of the joke. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times they don't get the specific reference of the joke. Um, uh, there was a, a show called Roger Ramjet that was a very, very funny show. But it, it had in one episode there was a, a villain named Mayor Yordy. Well, there was a Mayor Yordy in Los Angeles yeah. at the time. Yordy. Okay. If you're not if you're not well versed enough in in history to know, oh, when this show was made, the mayor of Los Angeles, mm -hmm. his last name was Yordy. If you don't know that, you're losing 50% of the joke. Mm -hmm. You only think it's a mispronunciation of Moriarty. You don't recognize, oh, they're they're commenting on the, the mayor of, of Los Angeles. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of things like that. I mean, I... I I, I watch movies sometimes and I'll break out laughing at people looking, what do, you, what do you find so funny? And it's like, you had to have been there, you had to come from that background to, to get it. By the time I finish explaining it to you, it won't be funny anymore. Um, one, of my, one of my favorite movies is a film called After the Fox. Oh, I love that movie! That's so yeah. cute! I know, I, I, I tons of fun, I really enjoy it. Peter Sellers is, is a... Uh, thief who is trying to smuggle gold into Italy and his scheme is to pretend to be a movie maker making a movie about smuggling gold into Italy so the police will actually help him smuggle the gold in and it, it's Phil it's a hilarious movie even if you don't know anything about Italian neorealism cinema if you know anything about Italian neorealism cinema, it becomes twice as funny. Mm -hmm. They're sending up that, that style of filmmaking like nobody's business. Uh, or if another... you're not aware of it, it goes right over your head. You don't realize what, you know, all these great jokes that are flying past you. 
Another great film from that period, uh, another Sellers film actually, is The Party. Ooh. Oh, I love yeah. that movie. That is one of the funniest movies, but it is Where's pure num-nums? 60s. There's num-nums. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and again, if, if you weren't there, you don't get it. If, if you weren't, when I say part of it, I, I, I did a review of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and I, in my review I was explaining what makes the movie resonate so deeply with me was that I lived through that era. Mm-hmm. I lived through it in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. I wasn't in Los Angeles at that time. I but was. I was watching television. <laughs> I, was, I was watching the shows. I was listening to the music. I was aware of what was going on in Los Angeles mm-hmm. because Los Angeles was pumping its media out all across the world. Mm-hmm. Do you remember? Do you remember a, a show called the Lloyd Saxton Show by any chance? Lloyd Saxton. What year? Yeah, what era is that? This would be late sixties, mid to late sixties. I don't remember Lloyd that Saxton one. Was was a local Los Angeles DJ and he put together a daily half hour show that was like American Bandstand. It was mostly kids coming out and dancing to music. But he also had some of the most brilliantly innovative comedy skits that anybody ever did. They would take they would take like greeting uh, not greeting cards but birthday cards and they would cut the mouths out of the characters so the characters looked like they were singing along with the record. Uh, they, they did kind of like proto-music videos where they would do these little skits while the music was playing, you know, comedy skits, but like they're acting out the song. He had this show that was shown all across the United States. I'm living in, in uh, North Carolina when the show started. I'm in the middle of North Carolina. It's it's as North Carolina as you can possibly hope to be. Every day I'm watching Lloyd Thaxton. Because <laughs> Lloyd Thaxton is, is opening a window and showing me this is what's happening in the outside world. Mm-hmm. Here's a little glimpse of what's going on outside of your community. Dick Clark had a show called Where the Action Is. And Where the Action Is consisted of just going to a Southern California attraction with a bunch of teenagers, playing music while they danced, videotaping them while they surfed or went on rides at Knott's Berry Farm and places like this. Yes, I love that. And occasionally... <laughs> That's where I grew and up. Occasion, yeah, and occasionally a, a, um, a, a recognized singer would show up on the show and, and sing their latest song, mouth, you know, lip sync it actually... Let's sync their their latest song. Every day for a half hour, they're showing the rest of the country, hey, kids, this is Los Angeles. This is the promised land. It's funny. This is where you want to come. Because that is, my memory is so sketchy of it. I mean, you got to remember, when the era ended, I was nine. Um, (laughs) I don't remember a lot of this stuff. But I do remember certain things. I mean, I remember, yeah. um, I remember Dick Clark. I remember his yeah. his TV show. I remember watching that yeah. and dancing in my bedroom to it because my parents hated yeah. it. Um, 
I had a black and white television, and I would be dancing <laughs> all alone in my room at like seven or eight years old. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I, but I don't remember the other show. I never saw that one. Yeah. But I'm, my point is, is that they were they were not even big budget shows. No. They were not. They were not major corporations pushing something. These were little scruffy fly-by-night operations working off a shoestring budget and all they could do was, hey, let's get a bunch of kids to dance and have fun on camera. And it just it 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 just opened up the eyes of, of literally millions of people around the country. That that we were even if we weren't living in Southern California, we were aware of what was going on in Southern California. So for people of my generation and your generation, when we see a movie like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, mm -hmm. we go, oh, oh yeah, yeah, I remember that. I, I, I saw something like that. I heard something like that. It rings a bell. I honestly wonder, 50 years from now, if somebody takes the film out and looks at it and says, you know, this this had a huge reaction 50 years ago. I don't get it. I, I just can't grasp why everybody got so excited over this movie. And it's because the, the context that made it so exciting to us, that, that touched us, that context will we'll die with our generation. Yeah. And the generation that comes after is not going to grasp it. Well, it's, it's like it's they... I'm sorry. I was going to say, it's like they say about I Love Lucy, the reason why it goes on and on and on and on is because it was about family. It wasn't... It yeah. wasn't... There wasn't anything that was... that you can't understand whatever generation exactly. you are. Exactly. And and some of the things you're talking about are very generational that only people in the sixties oh, and seventies would understand. Exactly, exactly. Um, one of the things that makes Casablanca a timeless masterpiece is they did it skillfully enough that people in later generations don't have to know the history of World War Two or Nazism to understand the film. Yeah. All they need to know is there is this incredibly cruel, evil, despotic group that is waging war on the rest of humanity and you have to make a choice to stand up to them or not. And that's all you really need to know. You don't need to know who Adolf Hitler was. You don't need to know about the death camps. You don't need to know about the Battle of the Bulge or this or that or anything else. All you need to know is these guys represent despotism, and you have to make a choice. Are you going to stand up to it, or are you going to go along with it? And that's why the film can still reach people today. And that romance, kind of too. The romance has yeah. a little bit to do with it. Come on, Buzz. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I grant you that. But if it had been a very... I'm trying to think of a film that, that I could point to that has aged badly. Because every film I can think of of that era it's is hard because it doesn't age It's badly. hard because they didn't have 
anything else to focus on. So it, even though it was, some of them were in high budget, but they were yeah. all focused on fighting the Nazis through well-done, well-written movies. Yeah. <laughs> even the smallest yeah. budget. So that's yeah. why it's really hard. Even the comedies were done yeah. like that. I mean, look at the Marx yeah. Brothers movies. It's very dated in some ways, but it, the humor and the comedy and the yeah. music, that stuff is not. Yeah. Well, it's, it, comedy is a good thing to point out because there are certain comedians whose work is literally timeless. I mm -hmm. mean, I, you look at Laurel and Hardy, and whatever the technological era is that they are in, you get those two characters. Oh, yeah. You understand perfectly who they are, okay? Mm -hmm. You start getting some of the other guys and and people like Olsen and Johnson who were hysterical, but they're only hysterical if you understand something about 1940s pop culture. Mm -hmm. um, Evan Costello are still Olsen. funny. Evan and Costello are still funny, yes, but I'm, I'm talking about the ones... <laughs> There were a lot of people who were competitors. I mean, they were, by competitors, I mean, they were almost as popular. They had a number of movies. They had a number of TV shows. And they, they couldn't sustain it because they were so much of the air. I'll give you a perfect example. It just popped into my mind. Jack Benny and Fred Allen. Mm -hmm. Okay. Both of them had radio shows. Fred Allen's radio show actually was was higher rated many times than Jack Benny's. But Benny created the character of Jack Benny. The the not a bad guy, but a guy who sometimes can make foolish choices based on, you know, not thinking things through. A cheapskate where everybody got the gag off of him, you know, you know, not wanting to pay money for anything. The, the classic one is where the, the burglar says, your money or your life, and he says, I'm thinking, thinking it over. I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about it. Jack Benny created a character that people could relate to. Fred Allen was always on the outside looking in, making snarky comments. That's true. And Fred Allen, his career, when radio started winding down, People wanted to go to a movie that had Jack Benny in it. Yeah, I'll, I'll watch Jack Benny go do something. Uh, they wanted to watch a TV show with Jack Benny in it. Yeah, Jack Benny, he does funny things. I'll watch him. Fred Allen was just there making nasty acerbic, funny, but nonetheless nasty acerbic comments on people. And it, after a while, people just got, you know, I don't have to see somebody make nasty comments about other things. I can I can do something better with my time. I didn't even know who he was until my parents told us about him because we yeah. watched Jack Benny our whole lives. All you know, yeah. He ha he was still alive when I was a kid, yeah. and he did specials yeah. every Christmas. So I yeah. saw him every single year. So I always yeah. saw him. But I, yeah. Fred Allen was like, uh, I, had, I had to go back, and when they started showing stuff like that, I had to go back yeah. and see it, because I never even heard of him until my parents mentioned him. Exactly. We, we, you know, going back to the Firestein Theater, 
Cheech and Chong are going to be remembered for generations mm -hmm. because no matter no matter how rooted in 60s drug humor it is, it still boils down to two comedic characters you can instantly identify and instantly comprehend what they are and what they're going to do. You know, and and whatever other things are around them, Cheech and Chong, you know who they are. The Firesign Theater, only at the very end of their career did the Firesign Theater start having repeated characters, characters that they came back to and did again and again. Uh, Nick Danger, and uh, there were a couple of other characters they, they repeated, but they, they didn't have that connection. Everyone listened to them, everyone thought they were hilarious, but there was no connection, nothing that linked them to the next one they did. You follow? Yep. And, um, you know, that's where they, they lost that connection. I, I think it's interesting because I was, I, when you were talking, I was remembering, you know, I think George, and Gra George uh, Burns and Gracie Allen were funny. But yeah. I remember when uh, Star Trek Four came out, and uh, the line was that the whales' names were George and Gracie. Yeah. Well, my ch my generation grew up uh, knowing George Burns because George Burns was always talking about Gracie, so I knew exactly yeah. what they were talking about because George was still yeah. around. Yeah. But the younger people don't get it. They don't even understand yeah. why everybody's laughing. Yeah. There's a, you know, there, as much as I love the Marx Brothers, there's a lot of times when I'm, I'm watching them and I go, nobody except someone who is really well-versed in 1930s slang is going to get that joke. Mm -hmm. Nobody is going to understand that. And if you, if you try explaining it to them, I mean, this is, this is where pop culture can be used effectively as a teaching tool. Mm -hmm. When I was growing up in the 50s, we had all these World War II-era cartoons, and there were references to rationing, to um, gas stamps, to ration cards, to things like this, victory gardens. And I was able to ask my, my uh, well, I couldn't ask my mom because my mom is Italian, so she was on the other side during the <laughs> uh, but, but I could ask my grandmother and aunt, my father, well, what does this mean? What does that mean? And it was explained to me. Right. So I was able to watch something, and, and uh, there's a Bugs Bunny cartoon where, where uh, the gremlin is trying to wreck the airplane, and it, it ends with the airplane plunging in this power dive about to crash into the earth and at the very last moment about three feet before the impact into the ground it just stops and uh, the gremlin says we're sorry folks but we ran out of gas and Bugs points to the ration stamp, the gas stamp on the windshield of the airplane and says mm -hmm. yeah you can't do anything with these C-class uh, stamps yeah, my parents were from that period, though. That my parents would under explain me and me and my brother all that stuff too, because they they were from that period. But yeah, I don't think people today. I love Bugs Bunny. I adore Bugs Bunny. Bugs Bunny um, yeah. cartoons, Warner Brothers cartoons, all of them. Um, yeah. Tweety and all of it. 
but uh, yeah. it's it's like the Marx Brothers. First of all, it goes really fast. It goes yeah. it's it, it goes very very fast, and it's very it's it's not for children. Even though it's been shown my generation in the '60s, we that's what we watched was Bugs Bunny, all yeah. the Warner Brothers, Hanna Barbera, all these things yeah. that actually weren't for kids. Um, yeah. And so when I when they started having cartoons that were for kids in the seventies when my brother started watching him, it was too immature for me. I would just walk out of the room and watch a, a another show in my room because it was yeah. just it was not up to the par of the Warner yeah. Brothers and the Hanna Barbera cartoons that I grew up with. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And that's that's one of the things. I mean, coming back to what we were discussing about the pandemic, we're going to see very shortly, within five years' time, a a generation start to come to age who will not remember what it was like before the pandemic. And that's sad. And yeah, and there there are going to be things that will return kind of to normal after the pandemic. I mean, at at a certain point. We'll, we'll get a vaccine, we'll have effective treatments. Everybody won't have to wear a mask. You know, we can we can lighten up on some of the social distancing things. We but, can hug each I mean, other again, yeah. we can shake hands again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but I mean, I'm, Sherry, I'm in, I'm in my late 60s, okay? I'm, I'm gonna keep the mask handy and I'm gonna be very wary about certain Things I'm going. I don't think I'll ever go to a, a San Diego Comic Con again. Yeah. Because 130,000 people, I'm I'm not comfortable breathing the same air with those people. Okay. And it's no it's no reflection on them as individuals. It's just I'm I'm even with a vaccine, I would feel a little you know wary about doing that. And we're going to see changes like that. We're going to see societal changes occur. Yeah. Um, we're we're finding out now the the education system it isn't working well with this home education it's the best we can do under the circumstances but one of the reasons it isn't working well is because the underlying system of teaching kids doesn't work well uh, I, I just read this last week the the rigid system we have was created by the Prussians in the late 16th, early 17th century. And it was created by them because they would draft peasants to be in the army and they would go attack their neighbors and the peasants would just refuse to attack. It's like, uh, I, don't, I don't have any complaint against them. I don't want to go charging into a, you know, mouth of a cannon or something. And they would just refuse to attack. So the, the Prussian king, recognizing he needed to have, he needed to be able to draft an army that would respond to orders, created a school system that first and foremost would teach regimentation and obedience to authority. And that was the most important thing. Learning to read and write, learning to do mathematics, that was all well and good. But the most important thing was you show up on time, stand by your desk, you, you speak respectfully to the teacher, you bow to authority, you do what you're told, and he used that to, to train his army 
as they were children, to get them used to obeying orders. So that when they were drafted and they were told, go charge into the mouth of that cannon, they charged into the mouth of the cannon. That's sort of disgusting. That, yeah, but that system turned out to be perfect for the industrial era because the industrial era needed people who will show up on time, who will do a specific thing exactly as they were told to do it, will not try to in innovate in any way, just do it the way they were taught to do it, and will do it by the numbers. And so it was a system designed to make people compliant. We're now finding when we break that system, when we get people out of a classroom, they're no longer constrained physically by, by other students, by the school building itself. When it boils down to, to actually the learning experience, that way of teaching, that regimented way of teaching isn't very effective. And we need to find a brand new method of teaching. It makes no sense to put children in five different classes a day. Why not give them one day's worth of class? You know, today's math class. We're going to do math all day today. We're not going to do just numbers, though. Halfway through, we're going to break off. We're going to go out into the, the playground, have some recess. We'll come back, and then we'll do number games. We'll do math games. You know, we'll have some fun, and then we'll go back to learning math principles. Do that for the entire day. Let them spend the whole day focusing on one thing instead of struggling to understand something and then having to put it out of their mind and jump to the next thing. That's true. Um, Buzz, I was, I was, we're oh, running out of time. <laughs> I'm oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. That's all right. I'm sorry. I, I talked too much. I told you. I warned you. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Um, do you have anything new that's coming out that you want people to know about? Where can they find it? Um, where is it available? When's it coming out? Well, go you if you go to my website www.buzzdixon.com, or if you look me up on Facebook, and I'm pretty hard to avoid. I'm everywhere making a making a pest of myself. Uh, but if you if you follow me there, you will see me periodically tell you about new books that are coming out, new stories, uh, magazine appearances, things like that. I'm, I'm definitely going to be promoting this. Um, I have, as I mentioned uh, before, I have a short story called Minutes that will appear in the anthology Fearless Leader coming out in October. I had this summer another story, Tongor of the Elephants, which appeared in uh, uh, Heartbreaks and Half-Truths, which uh, was a, a collection of crime stories involving, uh, uh, you know, love gone wrong. And I've got other short stories that are, uh, you know, out there waiting to hear back, you know, on, on which ones are going to appear when and where. Uh, but I'm, I've also got on my blog every Tuesday a brand new fictoid as I call it and this is a short short story that's uh, typically about 250 to 400 words long and uh, there's a brand new one every week so every Tuesday go to www.buzzdixon.com and uh, you know see a brand new short story do you have any virtual appearances coming up um, I, I will have another one uh, coming up tomorrow. I've got a um, uh, 
uh, interview tomorrow with a uh, G.I. Joe-related podcast, and I'm going to be appearing on another uh, podcast later on, a a, uh, virtual convention. We're still working out details on that. The nice thing about podcasts is you can you can find stuff that was done weeks, day, days, years, lifetimes ago, <laughs> and so you can you know look for me uh, in, you know in the podcast world. I've been interviewed in a number of shows. Um, I was I was on Flint Dilly's podcast that he was doing during the summer where we talked about Buck Rogers and we talked about Transformers and things like that. So. I'm everywhere, making a pest of myself, as I said. That's fine. That's cool. Yeah. Um, um, I want to thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Oh, well, thank it. you for inviting me. It was so much fun, and I love the yeah. chat. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you. And thank you for chatting with Sherry. Uh-huh.